Hello and welcome to the Investment Week podcast for May, where we analyse the biggest investment news stories and speak to leading investors about the most important issues on their minds. I'm your host, Anna Fedorova. I'm the news editor of Investment Week. Investment Week has been the premier publication serving professional investors in the UK since 1995. You can find out more about us by visiting www.investmentweek.co.uk. This episode of the podcast is a US special where we will be speaking to some of the key industry figures about their views on the US market and the potential impact of the upcoming presidential election on the US economy. We begin by speaking to two fund buyers about their exposure to US equities within their portfolios and how they're gaining access to the asset class. Afterwards, you will hear from Ed Smith, asset allocation strategist at Rathbones, on where the US is in the economic cycle at the moment. I'm, I'm Simon Moore, head of research at Tilney Best Invest. US equities we view at the moment as being um, expensive on valuation grounds, so we're more cautious. For the large cap equities, it's been very difficult for active managers to beat in the indices, so we've plumped for... Um, trackers, in particular the Vanguard USA, which is incredibly cheap. We're finding more active managers in the small caps who are able to, to beat indices, and it's a very exciting space at the moment, and we think that the, the managers of the Schroders, US Smaller Companies Fund, T. Rowe Price and Brown Advisory particularly, um, are very good. I'm Richard Philbin, I'm the Chief Investment Officer of Wellian Investment Solutions. It's very difficult really to say whether we're underweight or overweight when it comes to America because we build our portfolios according to volatility. So, But if we were looking against, the, let's say, the MSCI world, we would be very much underweight, as I think most um, UK-based investors looking on a 100% investment w- would be. Uh, we do access America through a number of routes, uh, directly through both active and passive managers. We've got an, a number of managers there, UBS, Leg Mason, um, JP Morgan, uh, for instance. Uh, we've also got some indirect exposure, such as the Fundsmith Global Equity Fund, which has you know, more than 50% of its assets in the US. Um, and we also have some uh, exposure to technology for trusts and funds, which are obviously very heavily weighted towards the US as well. I'm Anna Fedorova, news editor at Investment Week. I'm here with Ed Smith, asset allocation strategist at Rathbones. So, Ed, we can start off by talking about the economic and market cycle um, that we find ourselves in in the US at the moment. What are your views on that? Well, to gauge where we are in the business cycle, we tend to look at four coincident indicators. We look at payrolls, we look at personal income, um, we look at the output gap, And we look at industrial production at the moment. We tend to strip out energy when we do that. And we also keep a close eye on credit, which is a leading indicator, but important for business cycle theory. And we look at these measures relative to trend or relative to a neutral rate, because what's important for assessing where we are in the business cycle is gauging whether the economy is overheating. And at the moment, we're not really seeing any signs that the economy is starting to overheat. Uh, which suggests that we're not yet in a late cycle economy. We may be seven years into uh, the the bull run, which may mean that the cycle is getting a bit long in the tooth if we 
anthropomorphize it, but business cycles don't tend to die of old age. They die of overheating. And overheating either necessitates some kind of knee-jerk reaction from the central bank choking off the, 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 the economy, or it causes some sort of systemic collapse and a, and a confidence shock. But you know, importantly, you know, just because we're seven years in doesn't really mean there's anything to worry about. Keep an eye on whether the economy is overheating, and it doesn't look as though it is. And of course, the big news coming up is that we've got um, uh, an election coming up in the US um, that everyone's talking about at the moment. Is this something that's likely to impact where we are in the economic cycle? And, and does it ever really through, throughout history? Well, starting with uh, has it ever, have presidential elections ever affected it throughout history? Uh, yeah, I think election cycle theory, as it tends to be known, is really a load of bunkum. Um, I think it's you know, a, one of those uh, incidences of of correlation without causation. You know, it really just depends on what are, on which presidents, you know, belonging to which party, where they take over in the business cycle. So democratic presidents, unfortunately for them, tend to more often than not take over the end of a cycle, you know, in, in clearly a late cycle phase. And Republican presidents, by their good fortune, often take uh, over at the start of in an early cycle recovery. Now, that doesn't mean that the business cycle is in a late stage recovery because of that president. It just it's it's just really uh, coincidental or good fortune of where the president takes over, and the same goes for theories about you know first, second, third terms and all of that. So historically, uh, no, but you know with some of the rather outlandish ca- candidates that we may uh, that, that that have a a risk of getting into the Oval Office this time, then perhaps this time could be different. Not a phrase I particularly like saying, but perhaps this time could be different. So, of course, we're talking about um, Donald Trump there, um, which um, has kind of gripped quite a few headlines lately. Uh, there's even um, a new term that seems to have been coined, TRISC, so the risk of a Trump presidency, apparently. Um, so is that is that something that um, we should really fear as, um, as investors and from an, an economist's point of view? I think Trump brings with him considerable uncertainty. And as we all know, markets, economies, they hate uncertainty. Uncertainty alone can be enough to delay investment, delay spending until we figure out what on earth is really going on. And Trump you know, brings with him a lot of uncertainty. His tax plan is full of holes. If Palin and the Tea Party are his running mates, then again, lots of you know, social, socio-political uncertainty. And trade, well, I mean, that's an incredible amount of uncertainty. The idea of putting you know, 25% on tariffs on Mexico or China, you know, that if, if he ever does follow through with that, that would trigger an enormous trade war, and trade wars are just terrible for the global economy uh, and the U.S. And actually, he really he wouldn't... The U.S. is part of the World Trade Organization, and under the World Trade Organization, you're not allowed to... Uh, impose unilateral tariffs just because you don't like someone, just because you don't like the Chinese. Um, uh, so, yeah, if he wanted to do that, he'd sort of have to withdraw from the World Trade Organization, which, again, would be enormous amounts of up- upheaval. So, you know, Trisk, I think, is, is, is high. Thank you very much for that, Ed. time for analysis from the Investment Week team. 
I'm joined by our features editor, Hardeep Tawakli, as we continue on the US theme. Hardeep and I will talk about the rising number of launches in the active ETF space, particularly in the US. Hi Hardeep. So, what are these new active ETF launches all about then? Hi Anna. Obviously, the US has been at the forefront of pioneering passive investing. We had Vanguard's founder about 40 years ago launch this simple fund that just tracked the S&P 500. That fund now has more than $230 billion worth of assets in there. And obviously, the market's involved so much since then. It keeps taking a bigger chunk of the overall funds market each year. Most recently, we have seen the smart beta revolution in the passive space, whereby funds still track an index, but are also sort of more based around specific themes such as value or growth. Active ETFs, I guess it could be said, are really a, a further extension of that. So what does the active ETF structure entail then? So as the name suggests, these products have a real active hand or an active manager in choosing where they invest. It's a combination, it's a real combination in fact, of an active and passive approach. It is a very new area of the market and, and for some a grey area too, as it could be considered that they sort of overlap with smart beta strategies. There are only a few active ETFs in Europe too. According to Morningstar, there's only 20. And even in the US, it accounts for a tiny proportion of the passive and overall funds market. But looking at what active ETFs actually are, perhaps the most well-known active ETF is PIMCO's ETF version of its flagship total return bond fund. The ETF version of this fund, called the PIMCO Total Return Active ETF, follows the same strategy as the group's flagship mutual version, but it has the benefit of a daily dealing ETF. The ETF version of the fund only has around $2.6 billion in assets. Obviously, the mutual fund's much bigger, around $98 billion. Um, but performance of the ETF version is actually a little ahead of the mutual fund version over three years. Other groups launching these sorts of active ETFs include JPM Asset Management, who told me that while the focus of its ETF business has been and continues to be on US investors, so not in Europe, they do want to bring its active capability and its active thinking into ETFs in a different way. Meanwhile, Franklin Templeton sort of submitted a regulatory filing in the US earlier this year. They have proposals for three new products. A couple of them I can name here. There's the Franklin Liberty US Low Value Volatility ETF and the Franklin Liberty Investment Grade Corporate ETF. They recently appointed Patrick O'Connor at the group who helped launch iShares at BlackRock more than 10 years ago. So it's obviously a real push for them as well. And in terms of what these active ETFs actually do... The point of these strategies, I guess, is unlike an index tracking ETF or a smart beta approach where they, they sort of have a sort of value tilt or, or, or something similar, these strategies actively employ a manager that picks investments. So they pick where to invest. This can be in other ETFs, other individual stocks and bonds as well. So what about fees on these products? Yeah, so that's a, it's a really interesting area. Um, they vary a lot is the is the honest truth because remember it's such a small segment of the market um so on average they are higher than your traditional passive products um still lower than your average active products uh, so a couple of examples i have here the average expense ratio of a smart beta etf that uses the s p 500 as its parent index is around three times higher than an ordinary s p 500 etf now according to morningstar that mean, makes it at around 0.42 percent that's for the smart beta world Active ETFs command an even higher price, anywhere between 0.5 and 1.25%, although there are providers providing lower cost 
active ETFs. So Vanguard, who's always at the forefront of low-cost passives, they, they launched some active ETFs in December at around 0.22%. Obviously, all of this contrasts quite heavily to your average passive in index tracker, which have, uh, according to Morningstar, an average expense ratio of 0.18%. Yes, and you've got some trackers at the moment that that are priced at something ridiculous, like seven basis points, six basis points. So, yeah, it's quite a big difference. So this movement has yet to reach Europe, though, in a meaningful way. This seems to be mostly happening in the US. So are there any drawbacks to these products uh, for European investors? As always, I think overall, regardless of whether they're active, smart beta, people are wary of ETFs. They are quite complex products. Many advisors are reluctant to use them in a portfolio for that reason. A lot of people also use ETFs for shorting or leveraging. So this can often confuse things. It weighs in on market sentiment and things like that. But overall, their arrival is simply an evolution of the funds market. And as people come to understand how they work and how they can be used in their own portfolio properly, I would imagine that there will be a lot more launches in Europe in the smart beta and active ETF space, and people will eventually begin to use them a lot more too. Thanks very much, Hardeep. That's all we have time for today. We would love to hear your comments and ideas for future podcasts if there are any particular topics you would like us to cover. You can contact me via email at anna.fedorova, that's F-E-D-O-R-O-V-A, at incisivemedia.com. Thank you for listening.